Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Suzanne Chiani is a true synthesizer pioneer, a master of the Bukala 200. Her career has taken many turns since she began to work in Bukala's synth factory, from creating ads for Madison Avenue to getting nominated for five Grammys in the New Age category over the years. This talk with Hannah Bakker at the Red Bull Music Academy in 2016, held very soon after Don Bukala's death, covers her incredible career touching on the many challenges she faced as a woman in a male-dominated field. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Please welcome Suzanne Chani. So lovely to be here and to share this absolutely special time with such a special group, a small group of people. So I'm very excited. Nice to be here. You've done way too many things to frame them in a brief intro. So I was actually going to start with um, the story of someone else, and that is the nice gentleman that we see, who we see in the pictures here. Who is that? That's my dear friend, Oh, I'm going to cry. Just... I'm going to take over from here. If you need a minute, don't worry. A few weeks ago, on September 17th of this year, Don Buchler, who's in the picture here, left this earth. Um, he was a very dear friend of Suzanne, and he was also maybe the most important encounter that you had in your life. I'm sorry. Don't Just, be sorry. It's so new for me. Let's not give it a to minute. have him. Okay, but no. Um, yeah, we go way back. Uh, you know, really, for me, my beginnings of my career were with this person. I had just finished graduate school, a very traditional training. So I got a master's degree in composition, and I wasn't that happy in traditional music. And it wasn't particularly good place for a woman. Every composer has had difficulty getting their music heard, traditional composers. Even Mahler, you know, if he hadn't been the conductor of the symphony, he wouldn't have had the opportunities that he had. So combined with being female, I looked at the possibilities of a future in traditional music and it didn't look good. So I was open to something new. And as luck would have it, my boyfriend at the time was teaching in the art department and his professor had a studio right next door to Don Buchla. So these, these were big warehouses on the Oakland shorelines. It was an unusual area. And one night he took me over to meet Don Buchla And my life just changed completely because there, I mean, I, I knew about music technology a little bit. I mean, this was 1969, so there wasn't that much. 
But when I saw Don, I just knew when I saw his studio with all the modules, I mean, just mountains of modules there, I decided I would work for him. So when I finished graduate school, I got a job soldering circuit boards and uh, was fired after the first day. (laughs) Why? Uh, I was fired because, you know, Don was a taskmaster. He was a very serious person. When we worked at the table soldering, we weren't allowed to talk. The public radio station was on in the background. We could listen to that. We had very strict rules about when we could stop to eat. And at the end of the day, they found a cold soldering joint. And they said, oh, it must be the new girl. So she's up. What did you do? I said, you can't fire me. And I showed up the next day. I I just came back. (laughs) And it was quite a struggle. I mean, my experience with Dawn is so real. You know, it's not um, some... airy, fairy, you know, mystical thing. I mean, it was rough. I think our, you know, our relationship over the almost 50 years that I knew him had two distinct episodes. One was in the beginning from 69 to, oh, after I moved to New York, maybe the first 10, 15 years. And then we had a break. Then I moved back to California in 92. And we became friends. I had already given up playing the bukla by that time. And we became tennis partners. He loved tennis. I loved tennis. <laughs> and we would get together and, and play, you know, once a week. And I had no intention of ever playing the bukla again. Before we go to okay. how you got back to playing the bukla, what was the very first model that you yourself laid your hands on and where was that? Well, the one that Bukla had at his studio was a 200. There was also a facility called, it was the new housing for the San Francisco Tape Music Center. And that was now housed in Mills College. It had no connection, official connection with the college, other than that it was, you know, had a, had a place there. And I could go there for $5 an hour, but they never, ever collected the money. And for $5 an hour, you could, play a Bukla 100, a Moog, early Moog, 15, I guess, and surplus electronics, surplus parts. What kind of institution is that, or has that been the San Francisco Tape Music Center? Because not everyone might know. Well, it was really started, you know, the the impetus for Don Bukla was Mort Sabotnik. So Mort had this idea that he wanted an electronic machine. He found Don Buchla, and thus was born this early voltage-controlled electronic music concept. By the time I met Don, which was a few years later, he had already progressed enormously in his vision of what this machine would be. I talked to Mort, actually, at a Red Bull interview a year ago, and I was surprised to find that he never thought of the bukla as a performance instrument. He thought of it as something you recorded. You made a nice sound, you put it on tape, you made another sound, you overdubbed, and that's how Silver Apples was made. It was really a tape project. By the time I met Don, I was proselytized with his new vision, which is that he was making 
a performance instrument in the tradition of musical instruments that you played live. How long had you played the burla when you went to New York? How many years? About, um, by that time, well, 19, I started in 69, so about five years. But, you know, I went to New York with just the bukla. That's all I had. I went to do a live concert. So a friend of mine was a sculptor, and he had an opening in an art gallery. And he asked me to perform. So I went a month ahead of time to New York, and I you know, rehearsed for a month. I did the concert, but I never left. You know, from the second I got to New York, I never wanted to leave it. I just, it just electrified me. And so I stayed. I never went back. I had all my things put in storage. And I had just the bukla, and I lived with that. Before you went to New York, you studied, you did a summer course in computer music, right, with John Charning. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... During that time, I think it's it's difficult for people to imagine nowadays that there was actually a time where you had to compute music. You had to put in numbers, then let it process for a few hours. No, overnight. <laughs> overnight. <laughs> so how yeah, did that you, work? You, you kids, you just don't know what that was like. <laughs> I mean, we had, you used punched cards and you'd, you know, get the card. You, you've heard of that, right? Okay. <laughs> Bunch cards. <laughs> and then, you know, so one time you would design these pieces, you know, you'd draw out all the oscillators and all the routing and all that and put the numbers in. And one time I did this whole composition. I was so excited. I went in the next day to pick up the tape, which was like gargantuan. And uh, I had forgotten to specify a volume. So the piece was in there. It was just, you couldn't hear it. But I learned a lot doing the computer computer music, and it was such a privilege to work with Max Matthews. I mean, he he's just a saint. You know, we're at a time right now where we're really seeing the passing of some of the great, you know, cornerstones of this music technology. In my lifetime, you know, I'm much older than you are, but I have seen, you know, the beginnings... And now we're starting to lose those people that started it. Max Matthews and John Chowning were both teaching at Stanford at that time. And I think John Chowning is most known for the development of FTP synthesis, right. etc. Just that you have some... Frequency some modulation. He licensed it to like Yamaha and made a lot of money for the university of Stanford. At this time when many of these inventions first... So appeared in your life. How did you imagine the future? I thought everybody would have one of these in, in like minutes. You know, I just, I, I really did. And so I was very patient because nobody knew what was going on. If I played the bukla, nobody even knew that the sound was coming from the machine. It was so heartbreaking in a way, the communication gap. And I always took the time to explain because I felt responsible, you know, for that I was going to, you know, help all this to happen. And uh, it was just never going to happen then. It wasn't time to happen. But now it's happening. I was so, going to say yeah. in this room, sort of everyone has something one machine that has something to do with uh, the Buchla 200. 
I think there's a pretty big chance we're on 100% here. Yeah. But many years passed between that. And as you said, you moved to New York and the, few, the first few years were quite a struggle to survive there because all you had was a buchler. Right. And all you did was music. Right. You know, it became clear to me because I was living in Soho at the time before it was Soho. And at one point I was sleeping on the floor of, you know, Philip Glass's studio. And there were a lot of artists there. And, and actually a lot of them would go to Berlin. Berlin was very hot even back then. But the artists had something to sell. They had drawings, they had paintings, they had things. We didn't have anything to sell because you couldn't, there were no CDs then. A normal person couldn't make an LP. You had to have a record deal to get an LP. So there was nothing that we could monetize except maybe performing. That was the only option. I tried to get a record deal. I went every place with my bukla. And they said, you know, why don't you sing? <laughs> why don't you play the guitar? Like, what's wrong with you <laughs> and even the concerts were hard you know I had a date booked at Lincoln Center and and I said well I need four speakers I said I can only play in quadraphonic and they said well we can't do that and I said well then I can't play and that was the end of that and so I then you know I don't know if you want to hear all this story but I decided to change the theater so I started a corporation called the Electronic Center for New Music. They were about to rebuild Avery Fisher Hall. And I thought if I could get all these, you know, techno audio engineering people on my board, which I did, you know, we would design a new theater that could accommodate electronic music. And I went to Lincoln Center and I had my board and I had all my people and I said, this is what we need to do. And they said, who are you? <laughs> you're not rich. You're not famous. You know, you're not Leonard Bernstein. I mean, I said, oh, you need rich and famous? Okay, I'll be back. You know? <laughs> Was it easier for you to get your more experimental ideas through in the ad world than in the music world at that time? The music world, especially the recording world, was definitely closed. They look backwards. They say, this is the hit we have. Can we get another one like that? They want what they already have. They're not looking to break through, really. Not those big record companies. And advertising is like, oh my God, let's be different. Let's be on the edge. Let's do something. We don't care if we understand it. We want something new. We want to be, you know, the first. So it's perfect for me to break through in advertising. You did get ignored, though, a few times, for example, by a gentleman <laughs> called Billy Davis. Right. This is another one of my, you know, uh, stubborn stories. But... Um, Yeah, I was knocking on the doors. I was hungry. This was a great motivation. So I had my bukla. I had a list of the top 20 advertising agencies. And I had a calendar. And I would, you know, write down on the calendar when I called. And they would always say, call back in two weeks. 
And so I would call back in two weeks, and they would say, call back in two weeks. And I had this long list, and every once in a while, they'd say, okay, come on in. So I had an appointment with Billy Davis, the head of music at the largest advertising agency in the world. And a veteran of Motown. Yes, a veteran of Motown. Amazing guy. He brought, he brought Motown to Madison Avenue. He stood me up once, he stood me up twice, and he stood me up the third time, and I said, wait a minute. I said, I, I was in his office, and they said he wasn't there, and I said, well, where is he? And they told me where he was, and I went over to the studio, and I said, um, you know, you had an appointment with me. And he said, oh, you know, who are you? And they, this is the story, though. At that very moment, they were playing a Coca-Cola commercial. And they had a, a hole in it. It was a radio spot. And he said, well, you know, what do you do? And I said, I play the bukla. And what's that? Well, I make sounds. Oh, okay. And then he's, he shows me this opening. He said, can you do something in there? And I said, yes, of course. And uh, he said, what do you need? I said, I need my bukla. He said, go get it. So I made this little sound called the pop and pour. And they used it in every commercial all over the world. And all of this meant, you know, that I could launch my recording career because I, by that time, figured out that the record companies weren't going to be financing my records. At that time, you were doing ads and sound design for machines. But were you also involved in playing on other people's music? When I first got to New York, I did session work. You know, so I was a gun for hire, and uh, I did a lot of uh, CTI jazz records. I did Miko's Star Wars disco version. I did things for the movies, fame, the Stepford Wives. But then, you know, I, I saw that people didn't really know how to use electronics effectively because I was always being called in after tracks had been laid down. And they wanted me to, you know, add something to it. Well, you could add a certain thing, but you couldn't be rhythmically, you know, the, the core. And I knew we had to start with the electronics. And so I started my own company, basically, so that I could, you know, do it all, do the whole production, because I knew how to integrate it better. You know, you'd be hired to add something and there would be no space or there wouldn't be the right opportunity. I'm yeah. just looking up, you had this amazing sort of quote, trademark quote saying, Suzanne Chan is supplying synthesized seasoning. I love that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. It was seasoning at first, and then it became from the ground up, you know, the structure. What was your experience um, when it comes to how people were trying to incorporate the synthesizer in their composings? What were they expecting knowing electronics so little, the composers that you worked with? Well, you know, the, the whole thing went through, the technology kind of took a left turn. So when I came to New York and I had the Buchla and I didn't use a keyboard, you know, it opened up things in a new way of sound design. Then all these instruments started to come out that had keyboards. And it changed the perception of electronic music to something that was just a timbre that you played on a keyboard. 
and that you you know you might replace or augment uh, a traditional instrument. Maybe you'd be part of the string section, or you'd you know be a flute, or maybe even an odd sounding flute. But it was upsetting to me because uh, it really narrowed the purview of what was possible with electronics. And it just kept going in that direction. You know, it became more and more keyboard oriented. And, and you know, for me, electronics is, because I'm a bukla, you know, I started with a bukla. It was never about the timbre or the sound, really. It was about the way the sound could move, how you could control it. It wasn't like, oh, what a great sound. You know, it was, no, what a great arc of motion. What, you know, a sound that starts here and then it ends up up here and it spins around the room and it's in motion. It was a different approach to the possibilities. And, you know, it got complicated because the unions thought that electronic music was replacing musicians. And that was a dead end. You know, that was a dangerous thing because actually it worked for me. I don't know if any of you care about this, but in order to punish people for using the synthesizer, we didn't call it a synthesizer, but electronic music, uh, the union said, well, you have to pay double scale. They didn't want you to hire a synthesist. And every time they overdub, you have to pay them again. So by the rules of the union, if I went in to do a session and somebody asked me to play three lines, I made what six people would make. So it worked for me. <laughs> well, you just said that you didn't call it the synthesizer. Was that because you rejected the idea of the machine synthesizing what an instrument would do? Yes. What did... Don Burla think about that? Well, I was, that was his concept. You know, I was born of Don Buchla's ideas. And uh, he thought the keyboard was an inappropriate interface. And even though I grew up as a pianist, when I started to play the Buchla, I didn't touch a keyboard for 10 years. I didn't want anything to do with it. And the other thing, he never wanted to use the word synthesizer. He called it, you know, he didn't know what to call it. He called it the electric music box. Otherwise, you say an electronic music instrument. But at the same time, there were other instrument developers who did use keyboards, for example, Moog. Mm -hmm. And you work with Moog synthesizers or instruments as well, didn't you? Uh, actually, uh, no, I didn't. I mean, the Mini Moog was a huge hit at that time in New York. And it was basically, you know, that bass sound that you heard on everything. And the filter was wonderful. I didn't start working with Moog until a few years ago. And, you know, they invited me to the first Moog Fest. And I said I would go because I wanted to represent Don Bukla. So I played this thing called a piano bar, which is something that Don invented. It was a MIDI interface. So you put this thing on top of a piano, a traditional piano, and it senses the pitch and the, and the uh, volume and translates it into MIDI. And Moog manufactured that. So I played that at first Moogfest. And then the last Moogfest, they invited me to do a, something special for Dawn. 
Anyway, they've become friends. I mean, in the old days, there was this polarization. Moog was in the East and Buchla was in the West. And, uh, you know, there was this warfare going on. And as far as I can tell, over the years, all of that is dissolved. There aren't any, you know, adamant parties anymore. But in the beginning, there were. And so now everybody's friends. That's great. You've been a guest at the David Letterman morning show at NBC in, I think, 1980. And when I watch the recording, the video of that, I realize two things. A, how new this was for him. And B, him being almost insecure, surprised, or, you know, just not used to standing next to a woman who was doing technology and who knew technology a lot better than him. So one thing we haven't talked about so far today is how was that for you being the only woman in the room with the machines? You know, I was lucky that I was doing something that nobody understood. <laughs> you know? So that definitely gave me the edge. Nobody could argue with it and nobody could interfere. So in, in that way, you know, I was lucky because I think if you... If you are a woman, and if you want to move forward, it's harder to be noticed if you're in a pool of men doing the same thing. You know, I think it worked for me as a woman because I didn't have any competition. I mean, there weren't even any guys doing this, really. Did that change in the sort of 20 years before that, or 10 years before that, from the 60s when you were at Berkeley, the late 60s, to... David Letterman show, did it change? Was it always the same uh, for you to be the woman with the machines or did it get easier over time? Certain things I've noticed vis-a-vis -vis that topic of women and that is that, um, you know, one area, I got a feature film in 1980 and I was considered the first woman to be hired to score a major Hollywood feature. Another woman was not hired to do a major Hollywood feature until 1994. So, you know, the opportunities, the fact that I had this little edge by being unusual, I mean, gave me visibility. But even that isn't, wasn't enough to change the gears of the music business in any way. And, and we're still in the process of changing those gears a little bit. You know, I had wanted to be an engineer. Nobody would hire, uh, you know, when I started out, I always had female engineers. I loved women engineers. I mean, it's hard to say you like one gender over another, but um, honestly, in electronic music, uh, which was different then, the men were coming from an already entrenched approach to sound. They were working in pop music or standard music. They could tweak a bass. They could EQ a drum set. They had all those go-to solutions. But what I was doing had no go-to solution. It was like, okay, what are we hearing right now? How does this sit in the track? What do we need to do right now with this sound that has no precedent? And the women that I worked with were not already stuck in something. And they just, you know, I, 
I have to say that I always got a great result from the female engineers. One of your female engineers was, uh, you have to help me with her last name, Leslie. Leslie Mona Mathis, yeah. Leslie was one of the engineers working in your studio for the recording of your very first actual solo record in 1982 called Seven Waves. Yes, yes. <laughs> that yeah. you self-financed. How come? Well, it took two years to do that album. Um, and I, you know, as I said, I looked for a record deal and I, could, I couldn't get one. It was very expensive then to record. We didn't have computers. We didn't have home studios. I, that was a home studio. It was that, that home studio I got because I did the film score. And I used the money from the film score to build you know, my home studio. Um, but most of Seven Waves was done in outside studios. So I would rent a block out a studio for a weekend. And it would cost thousands of dollars. I mean, it was... We're in a different time now. The instruments were hugely expensive. I had one instrument, the Sinclavera, that was over $200,000. 10 megabytes of memory for the Sinclavier cost $50,000. So you, you guys are in another... <laughs> and I'm in that world with you now, so I'm very, very happy to be here. Um, <laughs> But the studios were really expensive, and uh, you know the project you'd spend a hundred thousand dollars recording an album. Technology also because, you know, I I wanted it to be the top, you know. So when Nikam memory came in, we had to go to the studio with Nikam, and you know. They had EMT plates, you know, that sounded the best, and you know there were things that cost money, and uh, I didn't want that to be a deciding factor. So I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and working in the ad world helped you to, to do that, basically. Yeah, and not only did the ad world give me money, it gave me a lot of experience, because in those days, I mean, it was like a renaissance, and we worked in the top studios with the top talent, You know, you could get Steve Gadd on drums or uh, Michael Brecker or the Brecker Brothers, you know, on your, Judson 28800. You called one number and you could book any musician, any singer. Um, a lot of the singers became pop singers. Uh, so you had an amazing talent pool. You had the best recording facilities. And, you know, you got a lot of great experience in the studio. The weird thing was that even though I worked with all these great musicians in advertising or jingles, whatever, I didn't use them on my personal albums. I just very select few, like um, uh, Elliot, the guitar player. Oh, gosh. Elliot. The guitar player, Elliot. He lives I don't know his now. last name either. Oh, God, you probably don't know either. But anyway, every once in a while, you know, I would put one of... Them on on the album, yeah. So why was that? Why didn't you use them? Because it was art in a way. You know, even though I felt that I worked as an artist in my commercial work, because I had a lot of independence, freedom, and I did go into a bubble and I did what I wanted to do. But I 
I made this distinction about I, I didn't want my music to be coming through the machinery of pop music. And the machinery that it kind of got released in was actually not really pop music, but the very new genre. You became famous in, I guess, New Age. <laughs> right, somebody told me New Age is making a comeback now. Could that be? <laughs> is it really? Oh, my God. <laughs> But did you like it at that time? Did you like to be under this umbrella, New Age? Well, you know, the term New Age didn't come, in my experience, until my third album. So the first two, Seven Waves and The Velocity of Love, had no category. Then Neverland, the third album, this category appeared, New Age, and they put me in it. And it was good news and bad news. Uh, It was good news because now there was a place to find it. But it was bad news because I don't want to poison your mind at all, but it was very controversial the first time around, New Age, because it became a catch-all. Nobody really knew what it was at first. It became a catch-all for all instrumental music. And some of it, you know, it, it just went the gamut of... of spa music to sophisticated instrumental music. And nobody in, under this enormous umbrella could agree as to what really it was. So to me, I just divorced myself from the controversy. I said, you know, I, I was making this music before New Age. I'm making it after New Age. And, you know, I don't care what you call it. At this time, you stopped playing The Buchla 200, why was that? Oh, I had an intervention. I had a, you know, I had a nervous breakdown, basically, because I had moved to New York, and the Buchla is fragile. It would break, and absolutely nobody could fix it. Don even came to New York once, and we had the head of the Audio Engineering Society, and we had Don's versions of his schematics, which nobody could understand. And it was just beyond, you know, I'm a little helpless as an electronic musician because I'm not an engineer. I didn't design the inside. I'm responsible for the outside. And I think in this field that there is a collaborative, it is a collaborative process. You know, you, you have to focus on the side that you want to put all your energy into. So I do see this work as involving a partnership. And Dawn, as I said, you know, was somewhat difficult with me in those early days. And uh, I would send the machine back to be fixed, and then he would ship it to New York, and it would come back even more broken than when it went because of the shipping. And there was no solution. You know, a friend said, you've got to start playing other instruments. I said, no, 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 I won't. And so <laughs> people started giving me instruments and buying me instruments and saying, you know, do that. And so I did, you know, make a transition. And then I, you know, I, I started working with Roland and Yamaha. And Yamaha sponsored me for many years uh, with, you know, tons of equipment for live performance. And so I did move to other instruments, but of course it was a different, well, it's always different, right? Because the machine is going to dictate what it is 
that you, you know, the parameters of how you work. You know, playing a Yamaha, you know, they had some nice designs, but it wasn't a bukla. It wasn't an integrated performance system. I can't possibly imagine how that, how that must have felt. You spent how many years, 10 years with this one instrument, and then it's gone, and there's no way to get another one. It's just like... Yeah, it was traumatic. You, suddenly you're a painter and someone takes you. Your violin away or yeah. your painter, whatever, right? Yeah, it was very traumatic. And that's why I wasn't anxious to get back into it. And, uh, you know, Dawn, as I said, we played tennis for years. And uh, then he called one day and he said, look, if you're ever thinking of going back. Oh, I tried to get the 200 fixed. You know, it had broken down and it couldn't be fixed. Okay. And uh, anyway, Don said, look, if you ever are thinking of getting a bukla again, he said, now is the time to do it because I'm about to sell the company. And I said, well, maybe we can make a deal, you know. And we did. We made a deal. <laughs> I won't tell you what it was because <laughs> it's really very funny. Oh, now I have to tell you. <laughs> so... Am I really going to tell you? <laughs> I think so. Oh, my God. Okay, well, Don's car broke down. And he had a real trash heap of a car. And I had a beautiful Audi A6. And I, I decided that I didn't want that car. I wanted a more environmentally you know, conscious car. So I wanted to buy a diesel which I thought was a smart car. That was before the scandal. Okay. So I said, um, Don, I'm, you know, I have an A6, and maybe we can do a trade. And so we did. He got the beautiful Audi, and I got the, the Buchla, plus, you know, some other things. Um, the 200E I still have, and it looks great. My car I took care of, like, perfectly, right? It was an I love those machines. I took such good care of it. The last time I saw my Audi A6 at Dawn's, it was covered in mold. The mirrors were broken off. The, uh, I mean, forget it. But anyway. <laughs> but don't tell anybody else that that's how I got it. So. But basically there were, what, like 15 years where you did not play a Buchler? Between the 200... Right, exactly. Well, yeah, yes. deteriorating. <laughs> yes. And then getting the 200E. And yes. that was after you moved back from New York to the West Coast to a place called Bolinas. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most known stories about Bolinas is that there are no street signs leading to it. Is that true? It's famous for wanting to be unknown, is what I say. There is, there's no sign. They don't want people to find it. So they take down the, the street signs, and they took it down for so many years that they just stopped putting it up. But now people have GPSs, so they can get there. So it yeah. is a, a village or a small town? It's a small town, uh, an hour outside of San Francisco, right on the coast. Mm. And... Um, well, you have collaborated with a woman mm -hmm. <laughs> called Caitlin Oliver-Smith. Yes. And uh, how did you two meet? She lived in the same small town. So it was really 
kind of amazing. We have these community dinners where once a month, uh, you know, somebody volunteers to cook and everybody comes to somebody's home. You bring your own plate and your fork and your glass and your drink. And, you know, you have a community dinner. And after dinner, I'm sitting on the floor and, you know, Caitlin came up. I didn't know who she was and uh, she didn't know who I was. And we started talking, and I said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I play the bukla. And I said, <laughs> I said, really? Oh. <laughs> but, you know, I live in this room. It's very remote, and I, I'm always looking for an assistant, but it's hard to find anybody there. So I was so excited and said, you know, maybe we could work together. And uh, I was getting ready for a tour with the guys from Finders, Keepers. So she came over and she was my assistant for a while. And then she came up with a project. She said, there is a special thing called Freakways and they do younger artists, older artists collaborations. And so we did that together in my studio. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned the guys from Finders, Keepers, yeah. um, which is a UK-based label with a lot of reissues and... Uh, They contacted you one day, right? Where where did they find you? How did that call happen or that email? Okay, I credit, or I don't know, credit, blame, maybe finders, keepers for bringing me back into this current world of electronic music that I didn't know was going on. And what they did, uh, Andy Votel contacted me and I didn't know who he was and I didn't pay any attention and this went on for a year two years and finally he sent me a bunch of records and I thought they were the weirdest things I'd ever heard and I didn't get it and then he said look go into your archives get some old tapes and I thought well you know I really should you know they always say that 30 years 35 years is like the maximum for a recorded analog tape because it deteriorates. So I thought, you know, this is the time to really, if I want to preserve these tapes, I should. So I started transferring tapes. They had to be baked and so forth. And I sent a few things to Andy. And I said, I don't know why anybody would want to hear this stuff. So if you want to put it out, fine. I'd never heard, I didn't know who he was. He was in Manchester and I thought it was obscure. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm on national radio and all this stuff is happening. And I find out that there's a revolution going on in electronic music that I didn't know about. So as I say, I was under a rock. And Andy released all these things like a compilation of like commercial things and early electronic stuff. And then he did the Buchla concerts. And so it's all his fault. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne Chani. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main academy event in one city. Uh, the lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. 
and among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff. It's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. But if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.